Yeah, I don't know, man. You ever just feel like life is just catapulting towards like, some greater purpose? The only DJ crazy enough to tattoo Jackie Brown on his ass. This is Michael Mann, and I ride with Extended Clip. Welcome to Extended Clip, episode 54. I'm one of your hosts, Eddie Averill. I'm Malcolm Baum. I'm JT White. And our double feature this week is The Best Years of Our Lives, the 1946 Academy Award winner by uh, William Wyler, and Middle School, The Worst Years of Our Lives by Steve Carr from 2016, based on a book by James Patterson. JT, how could you do it to us? How could you give us such a double feature that shows the highs and lows <laughs> of the cinematic potential uh, what was going through that crazy mind of yours when you picked out these uh, movies? Uh, well, this is like, I mean, after last week, I was really feeling the dad energy of picking Long Gray Line. And I was like, okay, I need another movie that I really like watching with my dad. Um, and the best years of our lives came to my mind right away. And I was like, okay, fuck, I don't really have anything planned to to do a companion piece for this. So, I mean, I, I pulled out my trusty letterboxed app and I searched the worst years and hoped there would be a companion piece waiting for me. Uh, <laughs> and, and there was, and it was a great choice. Like I was hoping like, this is the right, like the shit zone where it's like something bad that like that has the potential to be a gentleman's two and a half, something that you can <laughs> like really like bad, but you can boogie down and like feel out the grooves. But uh, yeah, no, it's a it's a fun one. Reflecting on all of the years of our lives in this episode. <laughs> These movies truly are about the years of our lives, you know, from the best to the worst. The Best Years of Our Lives, uh, the William Wyler film about post-war America, tracks three veterans and uh, their journeys in reassimilating into the post-war society. Uh, it's three hours long, shot by the god uh, Toland, who just like so much great deep focus in this and so many great just like long takes and so much detail going into pretty much every scene in this uh it really is like a super production you know and uh worthy uh it's like i don't know a lot of the classic hollywood stuff that i love isn't the big super productions like that you know i mean i like some epics like spartacus but for the most part i like the more stripped down down and dirty stuff but this really has that feeling of like the entirety of the Hollywood system wanting this to be a great film, you know? Yeah, which is absolutely like, I don't know, it feels wild for me that it's like you get uh, Greg Tolan's deep dicking, deep focus, and like uh, it's such a masterful and like, I mean, epic telling of like what is like a pretty simple story and just like the like so something that's like such a studio movie that is so fucking bleak. And, like, deals with, like, a lot of issues that are, like, I don't know, feel profoundly, like, ahead of their time. It's, uh, I don't know. I, I really like it for those reasons. No, yeah. I think, you know, what makes this better compared to, like, some Hollywood super productions, like, maybe, I don't know, From Here to Eternity, as an example, that, you know, I don't quite warm up to as much as I feel like 
one, it's like Greg Toland really is like doing everything in this movie. And a lot of what I enjoy about this movie is in due to him, just, you know, these dense frames, you know, filled with, you know, so much detail and, you know, um, meaning as well. And, and that, yeah, I think the tone is a little bit, a little bit bleaker than you'd get from, you know, classic Hollywood. They're, uh, they're dealing with some issues here. This is definitely an issues movie, but, uh, you know, that could be used as a negative term, but I feel like this, I weigh on the side of enjoying it. Yeah. I mean, it could have just been a bad movie though. You know, like with the premise of it, you know, it mm-hmm. could be a thuddingly obvious thing that is even more conservative than it is, but I think it threads that line really well. Similar, it kind of did remind me of Clint Eastwood films. You know, when people call him uh, a very classical director, uh, this is kind of what comes to mind, you know? Uh, A lot of the long takes here, they're not, you know, showy long takes. They're more for dramatic immersion. And it is kind of a strangely naturalistic film because it still has, like, classical Hollywood-style acting. Uh, Just, uh, you know a more tweaked naturalistic version of it, uh, which I think is very necessary for a film like this. No. Yeah. I feel like scenes here are allowed to play out as like, as long as possible, you know, to, to, you know, great effect. And you have, yeah, you have your classic, uh, you know, Frederick Mark, uh, Dana Andrews putting in like some, some stellar performances. And a lot of what's great about these long takes is you'll get like some, some idiosyncrasies from these performances like, uh, I think I, I really enjoy like the first hour of the movie a lot where you have, you know, the three, the three vets meet up and, you know, they're sharing a plane ride and they, you know, eventually they, they all find each other at the bar and just kind of the weird faces Frederick Mark will make in like these long takes, you know, uh, proves the necessity of them, you know, these kind of almost like unremakable moments I'd have to imagine. And then also like, as the film goes on, you are, you know, uh, not just following these three men, but their families, because that's really what it's about is them reassimilating and all of them have different, uh, let's say family situations, you know, uh, levels of relationships. Yeah. It's about all three of them trying to assimilate back in and just like the varying difficulties that emerge from that. Their stories will like intertwine in some parts like Fred and Al, like uh, Fred winds up shacked up with Al's uh, daughter. Um, but they all like, like Homer to his uh, like, he's friends with the guy who owns the bar that they wind up at. But really Fred and Homer's, two stories i'd say like take the main uh Mm -hmm. seat here i mean it's kind of like the way al's story uh resolves i feel like is even a little depressing for me because it's like he's still like throughout the film he's like clearly like a fucking alcoholic and then (laughs) it's just like kind of a joke uh at the end which is like again really bleak yeah no like all that he can accomplish is like uh, convincing his boss to take like some more risks in their banking business, like to give more loans to, you know, uh, veterans and take a risk on the future of the economy or whatever. But it's like, it's just for a, a few small business loans while he's fucking shit faced. Like his wife is marking tallies on the dinner table while they're at this, uh, you know, company dinner and he's like eight drinks deep, uh, just rambling in front of the fucking company. I'm just going to sum the whole thing up in one word. (coughs) 
My wife doesn't think I'd better sum it up in that one word. And that's kind of his like triumphant moment, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's kind of sad because the first hour and a half, you're like, oh, this guy is returning to a family that loves him and he's just going to have to like get over his alcoholism and uh, he'll be fine. He has a good job and everything. And then you're like, oh, he has the most depressing arc in general, probably. Yeah, he just he, he remains an alcoholic. Honestly, by by the end, he kind of reminds me of um, Fred's dad because I, I noticed in like the way Fred's dad is introduced, he has like a bottle in his hand and he has like that that kind of like drunken bewilderedness that you know I've just, mm. I've seen I've seen in a lot of people before, just kind of like they weren't expecting to see you, but you know they're happy, <laughs> but they were they're they're happy, but like they're like oh fuck, like I'm I'm fucked up right now and stuff like that, and then he 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 kind of he kind of possesses that essence through like the the back hour of the movie. And I think, you know, by the by towards the end of the movie, I think it's about love, right? Like it's about, you know, is Homer gonna marry his girlfriend? Is Fred gonna divorce his wife? And I think Al's storyline also kind of resolves. It's like, well my wife loves me. And you know, yeah, you know, for some men, that's enough. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> The title line, the best years of our lives, you know, that phrase is often attributed to, you know, these men who spent the best years of their lives in combat. But in the film, it's spoken from the woman uh, who is waiting uh, for Fred to come back. And she's saying she gave up the best years of her life. And then uh, really from that point on, and it might have been just that on the nose dialogue uh, cued me into it. But from that point on, it feels like the film is more invested in investigating everyone's lives and not just those three men. And it kind of reminds me of the way that uh, Scorsese will approach like the women within his male-dominated milieu, where it seems like for the first hour of these films that, yeah, there's not really going to be many women in here to really like get a good grip on. And then two hours later, you realize that they're the most like filled out characters in the whole thing. That sensation works here too. And there's that double date that they go on where um, what's his, Al's daughter is on a double date uh, with... Uh, Fred and his wife or yeah and his wife and they have this long conversation in the ladies room where there's like three a three paneled mirror oh that scene is so beautiful oh my god it's amazing and it's just this one long take for like two and a half minutes or so where the camera is slowly panning between the three panes and it's not just three angles there's like seven angles that he hits because each one there's a different way of framing both or just one of the heads in the shot and while this is going on um you know you're just completely uh having revealed the like not just motivations but the feelings of both of these women who you didn't have before because you've been watching them only in front of the other characters you know I mean, to speak more to the, like, female characters in this, I think Fred's uh, wife, uh, I believe her name is Marie, it's like so much of the first hour is about them returning home victorious post-war, but you don't even meet her until the end of, like, a whole fucking hour. Like, he spends his first night back, like, trying to find his wife, who's now, like, working at a nightclub, and then, I mean, he does spend, like, the majority of that first hour with uh al's daughter then i mean that's obviously where they build their like first connection and bond but it's just like i don't know i i think that's another point in this movie for me where it's like it takes a really like 
hard and sobering look at like the feeling of, I mean, what I would imagine of returning from war, but then just sort of the looming, like it's over, but there's still a lot of destruction that has been wrought. And it's like that celebration, Mm -hmm. like mixed with just like, Oh, what the fuck is going to happen next? No, I was going to say that was something that was kind of striking about me to this movie. It's kind of, you associate the post-World War II with kind of like an economic upturn. It seemed like, you know, history's, you know, depict that time as being a joyful time for the American people. And I'm sure it wasn't, was in some instances, but this movie goes out of its way to show, you know, a lot of, a lot of struggles going on. I mean, like the stuff with like the GI bills and the loans, it seems like the banks were very willing to turn away a lot of loans uh, for veterans because, you know, they didn't have collateral and stuff like that. And just, Mm -hmm. you know, it's kind of, and, um, or even like uh, that, you know, that disgruntled guy in the diner who's, and the newspaper, the newspaper. Oh, was the fascist like, sympathies? Yeah, the fascist sympathy uh, diner guy. It's terrible when you see a guy like you that had to sacrifice himself, and for what? And for what? I don't get you, Mister. Well, Anything else for you? Check. We let ourselves get sold down the river. We were pushed into war. Sure, by the Japs and the Nazis. So we. Oh, had- the Germans and the Japs had nothing against us. They just wanted to fight the limeys and the reds. And they would have whipped them, too. We didn't get deceived into it by a bunch of radicals in Washington. Um, read the newspapers saying, like, oh, there might be another war. Or, you know, stuff like that, too. So it's, it kind of has a pessimistic outlook of, you know, what a post-World War II society is going to be like. You know, it being made very shortly after the war, not even, you know, realizing the full effect of it yet. Yeah. And I mean, I mentioned Eastwood earlier and so much of it is like that fucking scene in American Sniper, you know, where he comes home from like, I think mm-hmm. it's his second tour and he's just sitting in the bar and he like calls his wife on the phone. She's like, yeah, when did you get back? Like he'd been back for a minute already, you know, uh, but you can't just go back like that. And obviously that's a feeling that people have had for a long time, whether or not they felt uh, the action they were in was justified, you know? I mean, there are like so many times, like even in like, the text of the film where like not the main characters will be like processing the end of the war period where it'll be like, I don't know, like the pharmacist or some shit will be like, Oh, gee whiz. I think we're going to have a swell year this year unless there's another war and we're all blown to bits. And that happens like four fucking times. Yeah. I would take the fucking four hour version of this. That's just in the fucking pharmacy. Uh, hanging out with the soda jerks and like <laughs> all the you know fucking snake oil perfume that they're selling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I want I want a four hour uh, fully black pilled version of this. You know what I mean? <laughs> Extra dark edition. Uh, I do love though that yeah Fred's character like pre war was a soda jerk and uh, he like resumes that duty uh, and you know. He, he really didn't want to, and it made me think about my job, you know, make, making fucking milkshakes and packing up burgers, and now that I've been uh, away at war with the coronavirus <laughs> pandemic, I don't want to go back to that either. Yeah, as a veteran of the culture wars... Um... <laughs> <laughs> I don't I don't I don't I don't deserve these type of jobs anymore. I think I think my rank should be a bit higher like Fred thinks in this movie. Well, I mean, when he goes back to the perfume counter, it's like the cuck who uh like he he like picked on and bullied. He I forget what dumb mm-hmm. nickname he says the guy has, but it's like the nickname's over now. 
I'm the boss. Sticky. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which is like Jake Gyllenhaal uh, as the photo guy in Lovely and Amazing, whose nickname is like Jizz or something like that. <laughs> this is the '40s version of that. <laughs> um, yeah. Also, when he goes back to the drugstore to get his job back, the new manager who's interviewing him is just like snorting yips the whole time. <laughs> like, oh yeah, that's so uh, fucking great. He just looks right at him and he's like, last year was about killing Japs. This year is about making money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I like, I like, the, yeah, there is, they, I feel like they touch on maybe the Japanese aspect of the war a couple of times. I think most notably when um, Al comes home and his son, his son is only in the first hour of the movie, but his son is like asking about like, What's like the atomic effect of like the bombs you guys dropped in Hiroshima? And I was like, uh, I don't, I don't fucking know. Yeah, and like, like and, you and, want this sword I took from a dead <laughs> Japanese man. <laughs> so I didn't expect you guys to be asking questions like that. You know, I'm, I just, I just came home, and I think, I think that's, I think that's really smart because it shows, I mean, how you know, uneducated, you know, these uh, soldiers are. Yeah, even, even World War II veterans, I don't respect them. I don't respect any veterans of that time. And, and, um. And, uh, well, it's not even that, like, I'm, it's, you know, you can't hate people for being ignorant, but what do you call it? You know, these soldiers really are just part of a machine. They don't, you know, there's not, you know, this kind of like hero narrative is nowhere to be found for these soldiers. Uh, here's a flag I, I found on a dead Jap soldier. All that writing on it are signatures and good luck messages from his relatives. Yes, I know the Japanese attach a lot of importance to the family relationship. Yeah, yeah, entirely different from us. Say, you were at Hiroshima, weren't you, Dad? Well, did you happen to notice uh, any of the effects of radioactivity on the people who survived the blast? Oh, I didn't. Should I have? Also, like, just in terms of the relationships here, you know, uh, obviously, Al's marriage, like has been on the fritz for a while they even say that to their daughter like to get her not to break up uh fred's marriage like that they've had to you know fall in love all over again so many times and i was thinking like i was thinking i haven't really seen any other classical hollywood films where the romantic relationships are this strained and like not uh in any sort of way where any tension is released either it's just really depressing to watch all of the couples here other than in the last 30 minutes you know like homer is uh like the whole movie up until the last 20 minutes basically telling his girlfriend to fuck off like he's just like yeah i i have hooks now you don't want me and it's like two hours of that and then she finally convinces him like you know because he's so fucked up over what happened uh that he doesn't believe her and then Mm -hmm. obviously you know fred his marriage falls apart and he falls in love with the daughter these relationships are so tense and he's like stretch it wilder and the screenwriters are just stretching them to their very limits. And it feels like they just like, can't be, you know, busted open. I like the, I don't even know what the metaphor I'm making is with stretching, but uh, it can't be busted. Stretching and busting. <laughs> stretching and busting. <laughs> Well, no, but William I mean, Wyler, I get it. He, he was stretching the movie out because he was busting all over it. <laughs> I mean, I get. I think I get what you're saying. Where there's like a lot of the simmering underlying tension that perforates throughout the movie never is like resolved. It, like it's like resolved in like a very mind. Like the ending is like 
a happy moment in all of these characters' lives. But, like, it doesn't feel like that's, like, it feels like there are more unpleasant moments ahead as well. Like, it's like, yeah. No, I was going to say, like, this this kind of uh, non-relief of tension is one thing that I, I like about this movie, but I think it's paired with a criticism I do have of this movie where I feel like I, I do appreciate its length, and especially on a scene-by-scene basis, I think, like, the length like, can make some of these scenes, you know, even better than they would have been. But I feel like, you know, to a certain point, I did, I did have a little bit of a zone out just because I feel like, you know, certain scenes kind of kept making the same points and, you know, maybe in a way that didn't quite... Uh, capture my imagination as previous scenes had done but that's 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 my only criticism like there are a couple times where the point being made is made simply through like a cut you know juxtaposing two aspects of a scene and then the scene goes on for another five minutes but yeah i don't know it doesn't really like i mean for me that doesn't like it takes it away from being like masterpiece level or whatever like it's not a perfect film to me but it, mm-hmm. I never really fully hit the zone out on this one. I, I was pretty compelled the entire time, even like in kind of the second hour, I guess the middle, I was kind of just like in my head a little bit thinking about where it could go in the third hour, but I was fully on board with it. And like the end when, you know, or toward the end, Fred's like second act break, you know, when he leaves his wife and like uh, his parents are reading his decorations as Mm -hmm. he's walking through that field of like broken down aircrafts or never used aircrafts like a mix of them and uh then climbs into the plane and like you know tries to exercise some of his ptsd demons uh before Mm -hmm. then getting a job turning scrapped planes into prefab houses which is just like Oh man, the remains of World War Two building the future of America. Pretty fucking bleak. Yeah. No, I and that's a money scene, of course. I would never want that. And also I think and uh you know, I kinda agree with you, and maybe zone out was kind of a strong word, maybe in my head was is a little more apt. Well, I think I think what's interesting though about I guess the criticism I have, I feel like um the the kind of the unrelieved tension is more felt with these kind of longer scenes. So you can't I feel like you can't really have one without the other. And so I, I, I still think it's a net positive, the decisions being made in this film. It's just, it's, you know, just something I noticed. I'm going to wrap it up here and say that the last scene, Homer getting married and then the whole time just the eyes being made uh, between Peggy and Fred bet- uh, before they finally kiss off to the, you know, background on the left side of the frame while the foreground on the right side of the frame is everyone crowded around the new married couple and ending the film on that note is just incredible. Like, I, I love that so much. And I'm going to go four bullets on this one. Um, I think maybe it'll go up in time. I don't know. Uh, definitely, you know, for a three-hour movie, I'm very down to watch it again, like, already. So that's a good sign. And uh, we didn't really talk about Homer's uh, plot. You know, he's an amputee, and he has to have, like, his father help him take his, you know, uh, hooks off. And he then, like, finally, the kind of romantic climax before his marriage is showing his girlfriend what his, like, nightly routine is. And she's, you know, very obviously just, like, okay with it. But it's his sense of his own self that's been so damaged uh, by his trauma that's just, like, it's he's a really tragic character, uh, despite his kind of, like, bumbling yes-ma'am persona. Uh, and I love him for that. So, yeah, four bullets.
I'm gonna go three and a half bullets. Um, I really do like a lot about this movie. You know, I don't. I know that I, I feel like maybe that rating is even a little bit harsh, but it's just it's where my heart is at this moment. Um, but I, I, there's a lot to admire about this movie. Like like I said with Greg Tolan, I mean, so many scenes of where there's, I mean, like even even if there's you know there's multiple scenes where you have multiple things going on, like the classic uh, ending wedding wedding scene is a great example of that, where you know you have uh, Fred and Peggy looking at each other from across the room, and then you know Homer. And, uh, you know, his soon to be wife getting married, but even like, um, in Al's office, just kind of like, there's a scene where, you know, you have great God tier blocking where that guy coming in, that poor guy who wants to start a farm asking for the GI bill, where you have kind of Al's face in the foreground and his, you know, his face sitting down in the background and like how, how they interact with each other, you know, and how the deep focus enhances that is just, is, is God level stuff. And, I mean, I feel like, I feel like Tolan's, you know, he's an obvious, obvious favorite, but like, I feel like he's really felt in this movie and really just, you know, elevates it to a whole different level. But, uh, JT, what do you think? Um, yeah, I'm going to give this one, uh, five bullets. It's like a favorite of mine. I, I'm glad you fellas enjoyed it, uh, to varying degrees. It was fun to bring to the table. Um, I mean... Again, like with what Eddie was saying, I wanted to touch on like Homer's story a little more. It's just like, I don't know, fascinating to watch the way he is like actively like trying to alienate himself um, because of how he feels about the perception of others uh, to his newfound disability. Because it's just like, I don't know, there's so many moments where it's like, he's only fixated on it because he can tell that other people are and just like he resents that to its core. But then there's so many like, I don't know, that's like mixed with a lot of beautiful scenes where he's like playing piano uh, with the hooks now. And just like the 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 emotional climax of that um, where he's with his girlfriend, Wilma, I believe. Yeah, Wilma. Mm-hmm. And they're like, uh, when he is like showing her uh, his nightly routine there. And that just like every time I watch this movie, that just like tears my fucking heart out because it's like he's like, I mean, it ultimately has like a lovely resolution where they come together, but he's like sort of showing her as like, see, like, are you sure you want to fucking marry me? Like, I have to do this shit every fucking night. And just like, uh, it's so, so fucking sad. Um, but yeah, this is a great picture. We'll be right back on extended clip. It's as if you'd never gone away. You know, we're right back where we started. Don't say that, Marie. Don't say what? what are you that doing? we're right back where we started. We can never be back there again. We never want to be back there. But why not? What is it? What's the matter with you, Fred? And we're back on extended clip. Time for a little Malcolm in the Middle. What did you guys watch this week? <laughs> You know, I wanted to, you know, revisit a classic, you know, remember the classics, as Eddie used to say. Do you remember when Eddie used to say that? <laughs> I remember that. Um, and I, I went to old master, old Bobby Bresson, and I, I fired up one of his, <laughs> his, uh, his maybe out of his filmography, I, just seeing on Letterboxd, it seems like people don't like this as much as classics, uh, Four Nights a Dreamer. And I thought it was really enjoyable. Um what you have here, you got a young man, a young artist, you know, wanders around Paris and he finds a woman about to commit suicide. 
jumping off a bridge because her lover, who uh, went off somewhere, I forgot where, uh, for a year, promised to come back after he returns, and he didn't. So who's going to, you know, we got our young dreamer subbing in for the, the absentee boyfriend. And uh, I think I think a lot of, uh, I don't know, I think I've seen some criticisms of this movie levied, like it's like, um, like the, the, the lead male character, we got another, uh, disenfranchised youth, you know, a la the devil probably here. And, uh, you know, he spends most of his day just painting and just like recording erotic situations with, uh, you know, hypothetical girlfriends and then playing it back and just kind of enjoying his own fantasy world. And, you know, and like, I think people have like criticisms of this character, like saying, oh, he's not an honorable guy or he's like up his own ass or whatever. And it's like, I, I mean, it's totally the point of the movie. I mean, this guy gets cucked hard when the boyfriend returns because it's really funny because, you know, the, the girl throughout the movie is saying like, oh, I love you just as much as I love him and stuff like that. Just, you know, a lot of, a lot of platitudes. And then, um, Right when he comes back, right when the boyfriend comes back, he just she just immediately goes to him, and it's it's really funny, and it's not even in a way where it's like oh it's like oh women are shallow, it's like this guy's bringing nothing to the table, like he just literally just just sits in his room all day and just like fantasizes about stuff. It's one of I mean relatable, right? But it's also it's also um, maybe the funniest person I've seen. Um, he yeah. likes to have fun, and uh, I mean I, I, the nighttime scenes are beautiful. I saw Dave Kerr. Um, say the transformation of Paris at night uh, turns, he turns it into a dream landscape, pushing, pulsing with electric mystery that is reminiscent of Minnelli. I think that's very spot on. Um, oh yeah. I think the nighttime scenes are like his most beautiful color stuff. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you got like a fun musical sequence too. Um, great movie. Great movie. And I just want to shout out Mac and Devin go to high school. Um, <laughs> <laughs> stones stoners are already gonna know what this movie's all about but um for uh, it's about it's a snoop dogg wiz khalifa vehicle in which um wiz khalifa is a nerd and snoop dogg is also a high school student who loosens them up by introducing weed to his life and it basically he the got the uh the wiz khalifa character just turns into wiz khalifa this is a you know this is a uh, if you're if you're a fan of those Edgar G. Ulmer movies or these Poverty Row movies, uh, this is your modern day equivalent of that, right? I'm not saying it's good, but it's a uh, it's very shoddily made. It's barely like it's barely reaches 65 minutes. You got about 15 minutes of uh, a CGI joint yelling at you, telling you to smoke weed in between the scenes, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, voiced by Mystical, written by Andy Milanakis. And um, it's just, it's kind of just a strange movie just because of how, like, it feels like a bunch of parts pasted together, like a collage almost. And when you step back, the image just quite doesn't make sense. But it doesn't matter because you have fun Wiz Khalifa songs. You have a, you know, a hit soundtrack, you know, some music video sequences. You know, the teachers are secretly hot women with big breasts and stuff like that. So, you know, if, if you like having a good time at the movies, maybe you pop on Mac and Dev and go to high school because... It's been on Netflix, I think, for like the past ten years. Like, I think when Netflix dropped, I think it came with Mac and Devin. So that's that's a movie that's always going to be available to watch. And it's a movie that we're always going to talk about. I think we've talked about it yeah. like once every fifteen episodes <laughs> yeah. or so. And I will continue to talk about it. I'm like, okay with that. Yeah. I did not know that the CG joint was voiced by Mystical. That is wild. Um, <laughs> yeah. Also, on Four Nights of a Dreamer, you know who makes a cameo in that film? 
the patron saint of our very podcast, Jonathan Rosenbaum. Oh, fuck. oh shit. Yeah, I'll I'll drop the I'll drop the image in the DM, but I mean if anyone wants to Google it, just look up Rosenbaum Four Nights of a Dreamer. Uh, and on his blog, he has a blog post where he uploads the screenshot of him in a, as an extra, and it's in like the most disgusting VHS quality ever. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's a terrible screenshot. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's pretty awesome. What about you, JT? Um, I watched uh, "Swept Away" from 1974 by Lena Wertmuller. I've been trying to like make my way through her filmography. Uh, she has a lot of things I've really liked, uh, a few misfires that I've seen, but I, I mean, I think it's because they're so like politically based, um, in like critiquing leftist stuff. Whoa. You never told me she was based. She, <laughs> she is. Um, and it comes across in a lot of the politics of the film. It's about, there are the, the classic, uh, Wurt Mueller stars, uh, Mary Angela Maleto and uh, Giancarlo Giannini, who is like in all of uh, her movies, like a complete bozo and like goes hard. And like he is fantastic. I am a huge fan and I always love uh, his appearances in uh, Wurt Mueller shit. Um, but he plays like a communist deckhand who is on a ship. Uh, filled with some rich people and then one of uh, uh like a rich woman who's just been a complete bitch to him the entire time just like mocking him like criticizing him uh for being a marxist like real middle class liberal woman type bullshit uh she's going on about how the left is going too far and then when they um, crash land on an island or like they get like lost, like she has some sort of stupid um, uh, complaint and they, she wants to like go to uh, like one of the like offshooting islands um, of this boat trip and they get lost and they ultimately wind up like deserted uh, somewhere for the majority of the film. And then the power is in, uh, his hands because he is resourceful and is like is poor, so he's had to do a lot of like physical labor. But with that, like he, I mean, I think the most interesting aspects of the film are where like even when, uh, like because sometimes Giannini in Wertmuller films will just be like an apolitical bozo. In one of them, he's an anarchist bozo. Um. But, like, his convictions are usually pretty hollow, uh, like a lot of, I don't know, sometimes leftist bros. Um, but when she has less power on the island, he become he, he, like, starts to abuse her in ways that are not particularly... I, I don't think Karl Marx would be very cool with. <laughs> um, and, like, I mean... Karl Marx's pimp slap? I mean, it's like, there's a lot of, like, sexual violence that emerges, and then they also, like... I mean, there's a lot of very, like, weird sex stuff in Wurt Mueller overall, but they they sort of develop something of a relationship that when they're ultimately saved, they, the, the rich woman refuses to like carry on and is just sort of silent about the whole thing. But I like the interrogation of like how, like a very type, 
a very particular type of like more patriarchal and like more like performative like type of socialism emerges from like these types of brutish guys who will like are only using it in a way to sort of like score points and then uh when it gives them like i don't know I, it like feels like uh, someone i i don't want to uh disattribute it but um yeah it's roxana on letterboxd um said it's a de good depiction of dsa bros discussing kim kardashian and giannini is like the ultimate dsa bro abusing power uh to harass women in like small circles in this uh but it's a good flick and all of wert mueller's stuff is like worth looking into more um but what about you eddie what, do, what have you been watching Damn, I missed the Wurtmuller retrospective that happened here like a year and a half ago. Uh, but you've talked about her films a few times. And they always seem interesting to me. I, I think I've been like scared off by the length maybe, but whatever. I'm long-pilled now, so I'll check them out. <laughs> Size does matter. I'm going to talk about There's Something About Mary, the Farrelly Brothers masterpiece. Um, this is a film that is, oh man... I don't even know. It's out of this world, man. Um, <laughs> it seems like very, very strangely structured. Uh, I think if you kind of consider it as such, the first 20 minutes is like the biggest exposition dump ever, kind of. But it's really its own r little short film uh, showing you the source of all of the trauma in Ben Stiller's world uh, where he, you know, it's basically an 18 minute build up and execution of a really funny dick joke. Uh, and like when the fucking, you know, police and the firemen show up to check out what he's going, what's going on. I just, I die every time, but it's then about, uh, Ben Stiller tracking down this woman who, uh, he put himself through hell over that night. And, uh, she's played by Cameron Diaz and she represents, all that uh, this film's version of male desire encompasses. And I think that's a big line of criticism I see with this film is that like its view of what like the ideal woman is or whatever is so narrow and dumb, but it's also the ideal of a perfect woman to a very narrow and dumb subset of men. I think that is kind of the key to understanding the film because otherwise, yeah, if you're, you know, applying this to, you know, universally uh, to relationships, it doesn't really make much sense. Uh, but I think in its very specific niche that the Fairley brothers have carved out, it makes perfect sense. And Matt Dillon as the private investigator <laughs> dirtbag, uh, just one of the greatest performances in any comedy movie ever. Just like, yeah. I don't know. I could watch Matt Dillon in that movie for five hours. Um, he says a certain phrase that I'm not going to say on the pod, but I, it might be the funniest delivery of a slur in the history of cinema. <laughs> <laughs> Top 10 slur moments. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like Mr. Skin, <laughs> Mr. Skin for slurs. <laughs> That's what we're going to have to do now. If they, if they get control of the internet. Um, but I, I, I think, yeah, I think there's something about Mary is like, basically, you know, there's a lot of directors who like, they're, they make great movies, but they never make a perfect version of their own style in their own movie. And like, there's something about Mary is like a perfect example of, you know, pretty much fairly perfection. Like this is like, yeah, this is like, you take the fairlies, you tell them to make 
a movie, this is the best case scenario. And um, oh my god, yeah. And and I think I think uh, met with Matt Dillon. I mean, it's such a great performance. There's a lot of scenes I always think about. I always think about uh, when he's spying on Mary, and she's you know she's out to like lunch with her friends, and like he's just listening in on their conversation, and then like they tell a joke, and he like laughs at the joke, and then they just all notice him, and he just turns away, and like I, I feel. <laughs> There's like, that's, you know, that's the Twitter experience right there for yeah. a lot of people. Oh, especially so. because the joke is like, she's shrugging off like the, the, all these great guys and they're like, what are you doing, Mary? And she's like, oh, it's okay. I have a vibrator. And then Matt Dillon just like <laughs> fucking bursts out laughing at that. And it's like that specifically when it's like him creeping on her for fucking 72 yeah. hours straight, like is like, the funniest thing. And him pointing the fucking like sound radar gun out the window of the car is so goofy. And it's kind of like structured more like an action film than a comedy. Like, the way that the really funny scenes work because every scene has something funny in it but the way that the comedic set pieces work feel like they're the set pieces in action movies and they have so mm-hmm. much momentum that they build up and yeah. so many parts that have to come together perfectly and then all of the dramatic scenes that link them are like just you just got to do what you got to do dramatically with the Fairley brothers, you know, like mm-hmm. you just kind of have to be along with the ride because you know that the peaks are just going to be the peaks, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that's a very smart way to put it. Yeah. Cause like the way these comedy scenes escalate, like just remind you of a, a fighting set piece where it's like, all right, now you have to fight the final boss or whatever, you know, it's, it's yeah, exactly. uh, very masterful. <laughs> and it's, uh, drugging a dog, <laughs> <laughs> or, or or Chris Elliott like having a shoe addiction, like adi- addicted to sniffing sniffing women's shoes. Chris Elliott, so amazing in that movie. Oh my god! And then mm-hmm. we haven't even mentioned Jonathan Richmond either as like the Greek chorus of the film, following it around, singing his little ditties. Uh, just beautiful, <laughs> amazing. The fish I can understand, but why did it have to be an eel? Looks just like the eel I had when I was a boy. And that thing shocked me every time I tried to pet him. All right, I gotta go on live right now. And we're back on Extended Clip. The best years of our lives is not the movie that we're talking about right now. Fuck, okay. (sighs) (laughs) I thought you were about to have a bit. Like, you're gonna come out hot with a bit. And we're back on Extended Clip. Middle School, The Worst Years of My Life. 2016 steve carr based on a book and executive produced by bleep james patterson (laughs) not gonna say his official title (laughs) i just want to mention steve carr because i clicked on his name on wikipedia and apparently he's someone i've been championing on this podcast for quite a while i mean he's directed films such as rebound which i remember talking about and next Friday, which I mentioned on our 420 episode. So Steve Carr does take up a, a lot of my entertainment time. Damn. Yeah, pretty much. I'm looking at his. He did. He's he's a, he did like he did. Are we done yet? Um, oh, he did damn. Paul Blart. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. OK, good for him. <laughs> <laughs> JT, do you want to tell us what this film's about? <laughs> uh yeah sure uh i mean i don't know we all remember middle school right it was years of my life life. uh everyone like it's like i don't know i feel like it's it's cliche at this point but no one is like middle school is the most awkward i feel like set of years because you're not sure 
Like you're in that stage where you're like kind of feeling like an adult, but you're also just a big fucking stupid baby. So yeah. still, <laughs> and so no one should respect you. No one should even respect high school kids. Don't do anything to kids. That's my <laughs> um, message. I wholeheartedly agree. We follow uh, Rafe, a uh, young. I mean, this this is. Uh, <laughs> I, I was thinking of this earlier. This is essentially a movie for indie middle schoolers. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, With lots of pop music. Uh, but, I mean, yeah, that is where it comes to... They haven't dug deep yet. They haven't found Pitchfork.com. <laughs> so give them a while before they put... Like, There's no way you're getting Neutral Milk Hotel on this uh, soundtrack. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so it's Rafe. He's like a kid who's... he's. Uh, had a rough fucking time, just tossed from school to school. Um, he lives with his mom and sister, and he he's like all set to go to um, his new school along with like a friend of his, Leo, uh, and they instantly like strike bad luck uh, with Principal Dwight played by Andy Daly and they what happens on the first fucking day of school is uh Andy Daly burns uh Rafe's uh no notebook with all his fucking doodles his like big titted women drawings <laughs> and he's like what am i supposed to jack off to now i don't have the yeah. computer password <laughs> he's real r crumb um but yeah so then that happens and then it's like okay you broke my fucking book I'm going to break your fucking book. And that book is the rule book. And so this kid is breaking all the rules <laughs> in this movie. Yeah, rules aren't for everyone, right? That's what the tagline is. JT, I couldn't help but think of you as, you know, when, you know, as uh, as Rafe, right? Because uh, you have that sketchbook, but like when he's looking through the sketchbook, it would just be like minions fucking each other and like Sponge, <laughs> SpongeBob with like a seven-inch, you know, shiny dick or something like that. It's just like you can't, you can't have this in school. Yeah, no. The real, re, the realistic content of the things middle schoolers are saying and doing is some of the most vile shit you will ever hear. Uh, compared, like the things that I was thinking and saying, my oh, God, yeah. there's no way they could. I mean, but this is a PG movie uh, for children. So we gotta gotta keep it clean. No, it's just that just gave me an a movie idea. They should make uh, what men want, but for like middle schoolers, and you just hear a bunch <laughs> of like middle schoolers thoughts. I you know they're just like, oh, I wish I could freeze time so I could grope that girl in class right now and have no consequences. <laughs> oh God! Uh, look, we avoided this when we talked about clock stoppers. We're not going to talk about it now. <laughs> Just no, middle school boys are vile little worms. And I oh, think that's sure. one thing. I mean, there's part of that in this. Like he seems to like Rafe, like, I don't know. It's it's ambiguous as to why he got kicked out of the other schools. I mean, the <laughs> plot twist of like his friend Leo winding up to be his like dead brother from cancer <laughs> is like that's that like really that shook me. That in, like yeah. that, I was not expecting that to, to happen. Oh no! I just wrote Fight Club really big in my notebook when that happened. I was like, "Holy shit, brother! Where is my mind?" You're right. That's you're right on the money. This is just middle school Fight Club. <laughs> I I can't say I like this film. I like 
things about it, I guess. I think Andy Daly is really good in this, uh, mm-hmm. to be quite honest. He's given a really tough task to be the kind of uh, militaristic, you know, fascist uh, principle that is representative of all of the evil in the uh, the systems of the world, where all of the evil in the personal side of the world is represented by Rob Riggle, who's fucking his mom. <laughs> Now, Andy Daly, uh, you may know him from podcast appearances uh, such as uh, Comedy Bang Bang. He, he almost convinced me that this movie was like watchable and like pretty good, like in three different scenes, probably. So props to him. This movie is fucking insane. It's like the most it it's indie middle school but also it's like reddit middle school you know um, (laughs) that's true like dude he has a zombie crossing sign in his bedroom his bedroom is fucking epic like it's ridiculous the scene where the teacher the cool teacher is using drake and future (laughs) to explain economics i just wanted to rip my fucking brain out of my skull yeah, no, that also just beats Booksmart to the punch, too. Adam Pally's fucking cuck lib character in this, who's like the cool teacher who empowers the nerds. Uh, total Booksmart ass move. No, I was going to compare this to Booksmart with it's like, you know, I know Booksmart only has one animated sequence and this has like fucking 12 or whatever. But um, it's, you know, this is just Booksmart, but for guys. Because it's all, instead yeah. of, because, uh, you know, if you're, you've been, you know, a lame, lame bitch your whole life and, uh, you, you know, you, <laughs> you, you, you follow the rules. This is about breaking the rules early and learning lessons from them. And then, you know, then, then you settle down with your uh, AOC <laughs> uh, girlfriend <laughs> at, at, the, at the end of the day after you've broken yeah, no, all the rules. This movie was pretty prescient in a few regards, including that one. <laughs> Um, um, also mm, just like mm, so many, just like shitty, I don't even know if they're tropes, but things that feel like they're in every shitty comedy movie, you know, like the, the sassy little sister who talks like a grown up, oh, you know, yeah. and drinks coffee and stuff. No, not getting any younger here. Uh, it's like, oh my goodness. That's in and, every children's movie. Literally every yeah. single one. There's like a sassy young girl who's like, you know, quipping. Yeah. I think there was one in Bratz. Like, we definitely yeah, have seen this on the pod before. I was going to talk about Bratz because they both attempt the school as prison metaphor. True. Uh, and I think Bratz is a lot more successful in that regard because mm-hmm. although I love Andy Daly's comic presence in this, you kind of have to have a John Voight type character uh, <laughs> in, rather than an Andy Daly type character to represent the forces of institutional evil, you know? The banality of evil. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, I think I think the difference why Bratz movie rules and maybe this one sucks is drools, drools. Yeah, that's see now you're thinking like a middle schooler. But um, I think children's movies for guys tend to suck for the most part, unless it's like like rookie of the year, unless it's like a sports movie. Like I don't know, I don't even know what there is to that. That's just a new theory I'm developing. But like, yeah. I, I agree with you. Coming of age boy characters uh, can't do shit. All they know is be incredible at sports, kiss a girl for the first time, and yeah. uh, <laughs> say a bad word once. 
Yeah, yeah. A lot of lot of almost swearing moments, right? You know, which Oh that, my that, god. If you're eleven years old, that's gonna that's gonna get you off right there. That's gonna that's gonna tickle all the, <laughs> the if, if you're a big fan of adult entertainment like the good place, you also might like that type of humor. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you're saying like heckin' heckin' doggo. Oh god. <laughs> you know what? Honestly, the the neoliberalism of this film, I'd rather take some heckin' socialism. Like, it was insufferable. (laughs) (laughs) What were you going to say, JT? Oh, yeah. I enjoyed, I mean, like, not as was intended. Like, Rob Riggle, uh, his character, not that, I mean, it sucks. And, like, he doesn't do a lot with it. But I like that they call him Bear because there's overlap with that being gay slang. And in my mind, imagining them them calling him that for that reason made it very <laughs> funny to me. Um, yeah. Except you know the kid doesn't think he's gay because he fantasizes about Rob Riggle trying to fuck their waitress at Dave and Buster's. Yeah. <laughs> right right when you see that waitress, you're like you're like, oh yeah. You know what I mean? Like that's dude, the Dave and Buster's scene has such a commercial ass sheen on it. Like that mm-hmm. establishing <laughs> shot of the Dave and Buster's sign is like I didn't realize that commercials had a different visual language than film until that shot. I was like, yeah, "Oh, I'm watching uh, a commercial now." The way that the Dave and Buster's sign is framed, like we've talked about Sandler and his product placement, this is disgusting in comparison to even Sandler's no, yeah. product placement. I have a, I have a direct comparison, and I think Griffin Gluck is in this Sandler movie that the Griffin Gluck being Rafe, um, yeah. two very dumb names, Griffin Gluck and Rafe. But um, uh, and just go with it. There's like some scene where the, I don't know what it is. It's like maybe a Chuck E. Cheese, but they're in like a ball pit, right? Where like in like kind of the comedy of that scene is like Sandler having to traverse through this ball pit, and it like sucks. Like all the kids are like mean in it. Like he keeps falling over. Like it's uh, it's it's not it's not a friendly environment. Whereas this one, you just have Dave and Buster's as like a backdrop and like. You know, they just want to play more games because Dave and Buster's rules. I'm not, I'm not claiming Sandler's doing anything, anything radical, but he's, he's at least toying with, with it a little bit where compared to this, it's just nice big Dave and Buster sign right out in front. <laughs> big money shots. Yeah. And the way even that Rob Riggle says, like, uh, you know, and we'll have whatever the finest uh, dessert that Dave and Buster's has to offer, you know, like, yeah, I get that there's supposed to be some sort of comedic irony there, but it's pretty much lost on me. Yeah, well, that's like the that's like the classic uh, comedian joke. It's like, you know, aren't you so happy you moved to LA? Well, you, you know, your friends at your hometown are tweeting about going to Olive Garden or something like that. That's basically <laughs> that. I mentioned the neoliberalism earlier, and I, I should back that up at least because, uh, yeah, back that up for me. <laughs> back that neoliberalism <laughs> up for me. Yeah, back that neoliberalism up for me. Um, <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> Uh, early on though, we get like the, uh, kind of the dialectics, like the discourse of the film in the sense of the, uh, speeches for student government elections. You know, uh, that's how, you know, mm-hmm. a film's going to get po- political is when there's an election. Uh, yeah. and you know, so the one guy says, uh, typical like commentary on the banality of student government. He says, vote for me. Cause you know, I have money and my stepmom's hot. Uh, and then the the AOC type girl uh, talks about like how uh, I, uh, polar bears are dying and like we need funding for the arts too, and uh, 
then like the i don't know the the synthesis between that and andy daly's character like being the fascistic kind of he even makes a joke about a puppet regime you know at one point which Mm -hmm. is pretty funny i don't know like what the film is trying to get you to think about what the right version of the situation is feels very icky (laughs) i mean it's just like him well him daily and a little girl never really like clash all that much in this save for a few scenes and just like her like the save the polar bears bullshit is just like some of the most like we saw this type of environmentalism in Bratz, which were like, yes. was like, so like better. Yeah. Was that like 2000? Like that was like, Oh six. Oh six. Yeah, yeah. It's like, it's fucking crazy. And this is just doing the same like tepid shit. Like with Bratz, yeah. it was the presentation was more enjoyable and it was like the, the tired shtick felt less tired in 06 but just being like i don't know this subpar in 2016 without like the uh early 2000s sort of visual flair this i don't know just sucks a hog speaking of visual flair dude it's in scope and it's like one of the most unnecessary scope frames (laughs) of all time (laughs) yeah yeah i mean it's was in scope and looked decent I might have to go back to the episode and see if I made that same comment. I don't think I did, though. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know the alternative, right? You don't know what you really have until it's gone. That's um, true. <laughs> that's, that's so... Some some sayings never go out of style, man. But um, My favorite saying in this movie is uh, <laughs> when they first hatch the scheme to break all of the principal's rules one by one, uh, you know, the dead brother says, uh, we could be vigilantes for freedom. <laughs> it's like all right, all right calm down antifa you know <laughs> calm down dark knight rises dark knight rises yeah occupy wall Street. you could really see the uh effect of occupy wall street on this movie <laughs> no this film is like so fucking upper middle class it's ridiculous exactly it is up to us to speak for the voiceless to be vigilantes for freedom. We've got eight weeks before Dwight tries to measure our worth on a bunch of bubbles on a Scantron. I'm sick of people trying to suck the fun out of childhood. Let's stop the suck. Let's show them that we don't give up. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was going to comment on the Adam Pally character, right? You, you, The classic cool teacher stereotype, which is just like, fuck cool teachers, man. Cool teachers suck. Like, it's just like... um. Like I like in Vice Principals, where um, you know where Danny McBride kind of tackles the school arena. Um, you, the, like the cool teachers just kind of like hated on, or like a source of comedy where it's like you're supposed to like respect Adam Pally for knowing who Drake in Future is, and it's just like it's fuck off, dude. That's that's definitely you know, and I don't I don't want to be get conspiratorial here, but you guys brought it to my attention that James Patterson. Um, you know, kind of wrote the book that this movie's based off of, you know, possibly bankrolled it. I think he's in it. I'm looking at the cast list in some role. And, you know, he has pedophilic connections to, uh, you know, Bill Clinton, right? And it's like, what's more pedophilic than a cool teacher? You know what I mean? That's that's just that's just bad vibes for everyone. <laughs> yeah, uh, there's also a very concerning picture of him with the cast of the film that JT sent us. And I might just have to make that the episode artwork for the viewers at home to look at. <laughs> Yeah. He also has a children's television show called Kids Stew. Damn. Spirit that's that's some spirit cooking. <laughs> that sounds <laughs> sacrificial. 
Yeah, even when we're not trying to peel away the layers of the elite, it just happens upon us in this show. There's oh, also yeah. a Rule 34 joke in this movie, which is like obviously fucking lame Reddit humor, but like there's a joke like for an older audience, you know, where uh, a character says like, uh, remember Rule 34, and then it's kind of a non sequitur uh, because throughout the movie there are like many rules that are referred to. Uh, in Andy Daly's uh, little red book. Uh, and <laughs> <laughs> I'm going the other way now. <laughs> yeah. This movie's way too communist, dude. It's way- <laughs> need to get some law and order into these schools. <laughs> this is what happens when you let the libs run wild. communist. <laughs> But yeah, if you're if, if you have a cynical mind that you allow to wander in terms of production and people involved in productions, uh, this film might not treat you so well. You might come up with some fucked up shit in your head, like I may have, uh, and then I distracted myself by just drawing a picture of Andy Daly while I was watching it instead of taking notes. <laughs> and that picture of Andy Daly ended up not looking like Andy Daly. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> Uh, also, Andy Daly does do new rules, which is pretty cool. You know, start the clock. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, little little nod to comedic legends such as Bill Maher. <laughs> Something in there for the folks. Yeah, for the older <laughs> audience. You're like, oh, I know that from his show. <laughs> the Bill Maher show. <laughs> Dude, the cultural references in this are so bad. Like the when it says like the uh, the Kardashian about like a type oh. of wedgie that he gets. Yeah. Like, oh my god. What what do they even do? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I lo- I fucking love the needle drops though. You yeah. can't like I I'm gonna like a movie at least a little bit if I hear Welcome to My House. Yeah, dude, there's a uh, line it. where he says, Seriously, I think I'm learning more by breaking the rules than I ever have by preparing for some dumb test. And then <laughs> Welcome to My House plays right when he says that. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, that's hardcore. I also love the Chumbawamba, you know, um, <laughs> drop, you know, Rob Riggle. Rob Riggle's supposed to be a villain in this movie. It seems like he's living pretty ideal life. Like, that's probably... Yeah. I'm probably going to be winning. Rob Riggle in this movie when I grow up, if I look at my life realistically, you know? Well, I'm not so going to let some bozo kid crash my whip, but other than yeah, that, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I'm not taking care of the kids like he does in this movie. But <laughs> <laughs> Also, I want to shout out Efren Ramirez, who's casted as a janitor, who says there's like yeah. no jokes from most noted, most noted for playing a... Pedro Napoleon Dynamite. He gets to just be there. So yeah. that's that's good for him. It was a weird performance. He's in season two of Eastbound, where he yes. really shines. Yeah, yeah. I mean, right. I mean, East I mean, Eastbound was on my mind while watching this, obviously, because Andy Daly plays uh a, almost a somewhat similar character type um that he does in this movie as a principal of a school. Or is he a vice principal in Eastbound? Or no, I think he is a principal. Uh, well, on the principal. IMDb trivia yeah. for this, it does note that this is his third time playing a principal between that and uh, Modern Family. Yeah, he does. Daily is kind of like a plug and play, like any type of job that's like a like a manager or like a principal, like someone who has to like who's in charge but doesn't quite have it together. You yeah, just plug I prefer Andy his role, role as the. Uh... My daughter gave me a VCR for Christmas. I have no idea how to program it, so I just stick my cock in it and fuck it. So that, that's my type of Andy Daly performance. 
Yeah, Daly, Daly, like what you're saying, like Daly does like carry a lot of this movie on his back and is like asked to do a lot. Like I noticed like when he gets like the paint on his head and he just has to like scream like ah Dude. the camera. It's like that's gonna that's gonna be like the hardest acting gets. Yeah, that must have been the most struggle day on set. Just like imagine fifty mm-hmm. people in that room like with equipment and shit and Andy Daly's just trying to fucking mug with paint on his hair. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, yeah, I, I couldn't help thinking that way too, especially like uh, just like think what's going on behind the scenes, right? We're all we're all filmmakers as well. That's a, a secret that people don't even know about us. But um, <laughs> like the the shtick where they cover the school in post it notes, I was just thinking it's like I I feel sorry for the poor PAs who had to fucking clean up all that shit just for <laughs> this know, lame yeah. ass bit. Like or the people like, who had to put it up too. It's like yeah. both ways. It's like I would fucking kill myself. Like that's awful. But yeah. frankly, I'd prefer that exploitative labor over uh, the pranks that are displayed through CGI, like the aquarium that is like <laughs> the worst digitally rendered fish of all time. And that's another real tall task for Andy Daly to mug reacting to a bunch of just a empty case of trophies that's supposed to be filled with fish. Yeah, he has a good line in that where he's like talking about an eel that shocked him every day when <laughs> yeah, he was growing whenever he up. Yeah, tried to pet it. Yeah. <laughs> that's a good bit yeah <laughs> there's some laughs to be had and you know sprinkled out throughout this movie i will say but, but it's like, yeah it, it it's a it's a movie to like keep a child's attention like it has yeah, to yeah, exactly. have 10 jokes every page i think this is a bad movie and like it is really sinister <laughs> like more than yeah. it should be and not in like a fun way either in like more of a neoliberal way and mm-hmm. um yeah, it's really weird, and like the cancer stuff is very fucking weird. <laughs> like, yeah, I don't know. I I think having that plot twist, uh, or like really that like structure uh, to their relationship is so strange. And yeah, um, I don't know where to fall on this one. I, I'm just gonna play it safe and give it two bullets because I think it's a no. I'm gonna go one and a half. It, it's dense enough of a text. But I, I still think it doesn't make up for just the plain badness of most of it. No, yeah, uh, more like middle class, the worst years of my life, right? Um, <laughs> I'm going to go one and a half bullets, too. Yeah, this doesn't quite hit the right notes for me as like a, like a, like kind of like a dumb children's movie that you can enjoy. And there's like, you know, maybe t- like those movies can be really ridiculous and sometimes that could work in its favor. While this is just, it's just kind of lame. Like, I feel like I've seen the trope of, like, young boy who likes to draw shit, like, a million times. It's all, you know, it's all, all of it's very cliche. A lot of animated sequences, like I mentioned, that, like, do absolutely nothing for me. Um, and, yeah, this is a movie designed to keep a children's attention and just brainwash them with neoliberalism. It's, you know, you know what this movie is. It's just a, it's just a, it's just a tool to get students into activism. They're just selling activism again. You know what I mean? Um, so you know, it, it's this, it's pure, pure CNN propaganda. Um, uh, I do, I do. Hell yeah! But I, I do, I do enjoy uh, Lauren Graham. Always a nice screen presence. But yeah, that's all. That's all. That's my. That's my two cents. If you were to ask, if you were to ask me what I thought about that move, movie. That's what I'd say. But uh, JT, what do you think? Um, yeah, I'm also going to give this uh, one and a half. It's like I was like, damn, if I was hoping for the gentleman's two and a half that I mm-hmm. gave Bratz. 
Um, this does not cut the mustard at all. I mean, I like. I want to touch on a little more what you're saying about the um, animated sequences. It's like mm-hmm. it's it's so such a fucking pointless flourish that does nothing and doesn't mm-hmm. like. If it ties more into like the actual story and like the purpose of the movie, like it it just comes up as like, oh, he likes to draw, and some of the like we'll cut corners on some like sequences of this movie by like just animating shit. Like it really pissed me off that the, the chase scene at the end where it's like daily um, and uh, they're in like that tr- uh, little cart with like dirt in the back of it. Um, it's like cuts to the animated sequence for most of that. And it's like, you could do like, I don't know, some dumb goofy shit. You have daily right there. You don't have to draw him out of this fucking picture. Um, yeah, no, just just shit. Unfortunate. Yeah. Oh, but oh, this did this did uh, give me the thought during this. I wanted to bring. I mean, I don't know. I don't want to get ahead of myself with the mailbag, but I have a question uh, for extended clip. Okay. Um. Do you do you guys have any embarrassing middle school moments? Did you guys make any Ooh. pranks like this? Middle school is the worst years of our life or of my life. Uh, <laughs> how how about you boys? I'm trying to think. I will say I will give credit to the film for uh, eliciting similar amounts of embarrassment and uh, epic cringe factor uh, <laughs> as middle school. Uh, I'm trying to think of specific instances though um, that aren't like problematic. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, those will tell you off pod um, <laughs> look middle school eddie bad little boy that's all <laughs> honestly i feel like middle school i feel like i was doing pretty well in middle school i think high school was a little harder for me i don't know that was like my that was my athletic peak man that's when i was starting on the basketball team putting up solid numbers every night Um, yeah, although it didn't like, it didn't matter because like the team sucked. So I don't know. I feel like maybe like, maybe like someone called me fat and I got embarrassed. Like, I don't really know. Oh, that happened to me a lot. Yeah. I wasn't bullied much as a child. I will say that. (laughs) Yeah. Um, No, I never got bullied. Like people called me fat in a way that they were like, oh damn, dude, you got fat. And I was like, yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you're you're just thick. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, you uh, a big boy now. <laughs> <laughs> I like Eddie. I'm liking it. Keep up the good work. <laughs> uh, what about you, JT? If you can't ask this question without having a little anecdote yourself, right? Well, I mean, I did come prepared uh, with. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Aside from like the usual uh, rumors of just like hearing someone like getting jacked off in the auditorium <laughs> from like middle school. Um, those floated around one of, uh, before I get to the story, I think, um, one of the standout memories of my middle school experience was like, it was like a gym turned health class. And like, um, one of the, uh, like things that the health teacher had uh, programmed for us was we would be, um, like listening to music that had suggestive like lyrics and then (laughs) 
like uh like like examine what the suggestive lyrics were and then the first one it was like the doors like light my fire where it's like oh man like you hear this guys this is about being aroused and smoking pot two terrible (laughs) things but the standout was he he played how low can you go and he was talking about like this is about anal sex one of the most painful (laughs) types of sex you could ever ask of your partner and it's just like (laughs) i was like i'm like in seventh grade like i don't need (laughs) to know how excruciating anal sex is like i'll get i'll cross that bridge when i get there maybe um (laughs) (laughs) that's fucked that's yeah insane that's straight propaganda right there uh secondhand embarrassment i had this one well in my middle school we had like four substitute teachers who basically came every day and would rotate whenever teachers needed subs you know so they were like my teachers in middle school one of them uh identified as a professional educator uh professional musician and amateur comedian so he would sing (laughs) us songs and tell us jokes and he also had like this beanie baby that was a that was like a lobster uh, and he would say, like, you're being crabby. I'm going to give you Mr. Crab. <laughs> and it's like, I'm pretty oh sure this God. is a lobster. <laughs> my, <laughs> but yeah. anyway, he tells one of the most obvious jokes ever in my class. And my friend Alex had already heard it. So he starts telling the joke. He's like, so this duck walks into a pharmacy, right? And he like starts, he, he gets like some chapstick. And he like starts walking out the door. And the guy goes, hey, you, you got to. And then my friend Alex just yells out, put it on my bill. <laughs> which was the punchline of the joke and yeah. uh i don't think i've ever felt worse for anybody i mean come on he was he yeah. had us in the palm of his hands uh, fucking 11 year olds <laughs> i got all right i got two stories i just remembered right now and oh sorry this, one more thing about okay, that man yeah. he was also a swimming instructor and said that a girl that we knew had a beautiful backstroke that is all Ooh. i'm gonna say about that well i don't i don't Backstroke? I don't know. I'm gonna I'm gonna claim innocent there. He's a swim instructor. A beautiful backstroke. Why Come would on. he tell us that like mm. on campus? Like just oh like, okay uh, okay all right. I'm not I'm not understanding the context. He taught oh. private swimming lessons. That's what I'm saying. Oh okay he wasn't okay the swim all right. Coach at school. We didn't have a swim team. Okay all right. That that's like because if he's just at coach, he's like that's a beautiful backstroke. Like that's that's fun. <laughs> but um. That's yeah. What you're presenting is much different. I don't defend this guy. I don't know what he's done. Um, <laughs> but um, all right, I got two stories. These don't even. All right, the one kind of involves me, and like I'm, I wasn't even really embarrassed because I think I think the the people knew it was a fabrication. But um, we were like setting up. Um, we'd like have a Christmas program every year, and like they would have like the older. Um, like the eighth graders kind of set it up and like, so we're just like on a stage, like some people are just chilling and I'm sitting with my friend on a stage and there's like this girl below us. My friend just kicks her in the ass and like just blames it on me. It's like, Malcolm, Malcolm kicked you in the ass cause he wanted to like touch your ass so much. And I was like, I was like, I was like, no, I did like, I was like, no, I don't remember. I don't remember how that panned out, but I don't think, I don't think anything too serious happened afterwards. And then. For a little bonus story, I remember in seventh grade, um, I had this teacher who uh, was just kind of just really mean and kind of just, she was too hard-boiled. Like, she was, like, too cynical to be a seventh grade teacher. But uh, she was, like, 
we were, to, you know, having a little history lesson, and then she just kind of has like a breakdown and starts telling us about how her dad fought in the Vietnam War, and when he came back, he was never the same. That like he and he like drank himself to death, basically became like a like a you know rigid alcoholic, and like said like Damn, the dude, things that's he embarrassing. had. <laughs> I know, right? Yeah, that's that's and said, horrifying. Like, said like the things he had to do there like messed him up for life and i was just like my god even as a subject i was like jesus christ can you just not tell us this um i think i think uh some some local gossip right I, someone told me that her her uh her daughter uh, disinvited her from the wedding so that's how that's going all right do you want to actually know the most embarrassing thing i can think of that's not like super problematic that i did in middle school yes uh oh god this like hurts oh my god uh, my friend was like at my house and like i helped him make a myspace page because he was like very not like good at using computers and the internet we were you know mm-hmm. 11 in like sixth grade or seventh grade uh so maybe 12 and um yeah so then something happened i forgot what but i was pissed off at him and I literally went into his MySpace because it was like still logged in on my computer mm-hmm. and like just like messaged the girl that I liked, but oh. as him, uh, just like cucking myself, I guess. <laughs> Damn. Uh, but like made sure to send something like super embarrassing that was like she would <laughs> be like grossed out by or whatever, you know. Yeah. Um, You're like, I, I listened to Justin Bieber. You just sent me. Yeah. Like, exactly. <laughs> I'm gay and I like Justin Bieber. <laughs> <laughs> She's like, we should be friends. <laughs> yeah, me too. God damn it. <laughs> but anyway, um, then my friend, he was like one of my best friends back then. And then like every day, he was such a fucking bitch about it. It was hilarious. Because like I, I was obviously embarrassed. I was so like, I was just mm-hmm. like, oh my God, how could I do that to my friend? And I kept apologizing profusely. But every time I'd walk up to him, he would make a big deal out of just like putting his hand up and be like, not talking to you. And like, <laughs> damn damn yeah. well you know you start you start fucking with shit like that man you, you face consequences man I, I don't know what to tell you well i mean in the in the, <laughs> the the best years of our lives version of this the longer version you realize that we would become friends again um and it's a sweet ending <laughs> yeah exactly I haven't talked to that guy in like seven years though but whatever <laughs> <laughs> um no email this week I don't no emails so. ever. I, I, I haven't even fucking checked it. <laughs> <I'm just guessing. laughs> Let's see. Let's see if there's emails this week. Um, this is my personal email. No. <laughs> we might have to start using that. See yeah. what's going on. If, in we, if the well gets too dry. <laughs> yeah, nothing in our email. Yeah, let's see what's in mind. GoFundMe update. Duolingo. Hi, Eddie. That 55-day streak is seriously impressive. Mm. Keep it going. <laughs> Damn! You're, all right, respect. I didn't know you had 55 yeah. days under your belt. That was that was a little flex for the listeners, right there. Yeah. Just now. Quarantine. It's it's kind of gotten the best of us, uh, and it's cut us off at our path. But if I'm not gonna have sex, you bet I'm gonna <laughs> flex. Exactly. <laughs> and, and just just watch out for extended clip international edition. You know that's coming soon, dude. That's 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 why that Duolingo <laughs> is is so high. It's for something. <laughs> I might ask someone what their favorite pellicula is any day now. <laughs> 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 All right. Uh, at extended clip 69. I'm at iPod underscore video. I'm at bitch face palace. I'm at tall boy thin legs. 
follow us on Letterboxd, listen to other episodes. How about subscribe and tell your friends? We've never told you to tell your friends, yeah. but tell your friends. I don't even tell my friends, but you should tell <laughs> Honestly, yours. Yeah. yeah, the only <laughs> friends of mine that know I have a podcast are the ones that have found my Twitter. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Which is like two of four. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, uh, I don't have anything to say about that. Yeah, bye. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was fun.